Um, why don't we stand up, and I'll read the text to you, Psalm 15. And if you read ahead, you might have come across somewhat of a, a controversial line in there. Uh, I've been talking with my ETS group today about it a little bit, dialoguing, seeing what they thought about it. Because it doesn't, uh, as you know, Scripture doesn't always align itself with Christian slogans. Um, so we'll address it, and I'll give you my perspective on it. And uh, yeah. So Psalm 15, verse 1, a, a psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. <clears throat> he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. <clears throat> Let's pray. Well, Father, as always, we're grateful for your word. Uh, we're thankful that it addresses our lives, our, our minds, Lord, our conduct. And Lord, tonight, that's the, the content here of what it's addressing. And we pray that we would be attentive to what you would say to us and uh, that we might be that person who is qualified to dwell in your presence. So thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> yeah, please be seated. Short little psalm describing the one who will dwell in the Lord's presence, and uh, which at that time would have been in the tabernacle, uh, which was in Jerusalem uh, on uh, his holy hill. David says that uh, he who dwells in God's presence is careful to do six things, and he's careful to abstain from five things. Uh, also, uh, it, there's six things stated in the positive, and there's six things stated in the negative, but the, one of the negative statements uh, isn't what he doesn't do, but it's what he does do. We'll get to that. Uh, the song is very interesting. It's, it's uh, kind of going back and forth, um, comparing uh, and contrasting things. Um, uh, all kinds of interesting history about the psalm. Uh, some of the ancient commentators from the first 300 years of the church say that it's a psalm in conjunction with the Ten Commandments. Uh, but some people that maybe aren't as allegorical in their thinking or whatever uh, say, no, uh, it doesn't actually address the Ten Commandments necessarily. Uh, there just happens to be close to ten uh, things addressed in it. Uh, some people, they, the ancient commentators insist that there's ten. Uh, I'm not sure that they were mathematicians because uh, there's at least eleven. Uh, and then there is the twelfth one, which is stated in the negative, which isn't a command to do or not to do anything. It's just a statement of fact. Um, but there are 11, and so we'll, we'll look at them. So verse 1, as you can see, addresses the question of who, Lord, talking to the Lord, who is qualified uh, to abide in your presence. Verse 2, uh, just as an outline here, states things in the positive. Uh, he walks, he works, and uh, his speech is. 
Verse 3 states things in the negative. Uh, He does not. Uh, He does know. He does not. Verse 4, again, back to the positive. And then verse 5, back to the negative. Uh, That's got to be on purpose, by the way. Um, So he's talking about what qualifies person. Uh, It's a man or woman, their character. Talks about speech, conduct, values, integrity, and then virtuous ways of using money. Virtuous use of ways of using money. Let's, let's take a look at each of them. So a Psalm of David, verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now, uh, the tabernacle was all that was standing, right, in the days of David, because Solomon was the one that actually built it, his son. So there's no temple. The hill is, of course, where the temple was later built. Um, anybody know on what plot of ground? I talked about it with somebody tonight at our table. It's a plot of ground. You remember David, Israel was being judged for a very bad decision of David. And uh, David went up on the hill above Jerusalem and uh, he, he uh, purchased the threshing floor of Aranah, you remember? And then Aranah had uh, livestock and yoke and everything there. And, and uh, so he bought all of that from Arnon. They used that to sacrifice to the Lord, wood, animals, all of that. And later the temple was built on that site. And as we were talking about at the table tonight, that's the site of potentially, it's the most disputed piece of real estate on the planet, is that, that particular site. This hill uh, it was later called Zion. Zion. So really, by the mention of the hill, uh, the tabernacle, David is referring to where God dwells. Where, does he, where is the manifestation uh, of God? And so the question is, uh, who is it uh, that will dwell in God's presence? Who is it that is going to have enduring fellowship with God? What sort of person is qualified to reside with him? Is that a good question? I think it is. I think it is. Uh, It was important to David, not just because he wrote this psalm about it, but he also said this. He said, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. So one thing, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Sounds like three things, doesn't it? But I think it's, of course, it's all together. But notice how important this is to David in the song. One thing, this only do I seek from the Lord, to dwell, to gaze, and to seek him. To dwell with him, to just constantly behold his beauty, and then to always be with him that I might petition him. That's really something. When everything is said and done, I just want to be with the Lord. And how could I be qualified to do such a thing? What could get me there and help me to stay there? So that's what the the Psalm 15 is answering. Now, the danger at this point is to think that David is talking about how someone earns the right to be in God's presence or how it is that they can be good enough to go to heaven. That's not what David is addressing here. Being with God, uh, being in the presence of God, has everything to do with fellowship. It has everything to do with intimacy with him. Okay, that's what David is seeking after. So the question is posed to the people of God. We might say to those who are already saved, how is it then that the believer enjoys steady, 
uh, constant or perpetual fellowship with his God. How do we do that? David answers. Verse 2, he says, It is he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. As we said, verse 2 and verse 4 speak in the positive, and verse 3 and 5 speak in the negative. So this is positive here. So David, in, here in verse 2, says that such a person who is qualified to abide in, in fellowship with God must be morally upright, his deeds always righteous, everything stated in the present tense, and his speech ever true. How many of you guys are qualified? Moral integrity, ethical in all of your dealings, and truthful with every word. It's pretty intimidating, huh? There, a person, he's saying, that uh, is righteous, maintains good works. He isn't the person who says he has faith, but it's the person that has works. Uh, they prove their faith by their works. Who says that? Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James. Yeah, James chapter 2, verse 18. So this person that David is talking about is not passive in regard to their character, their virtues. They're, they're active in their works. Uh, they don't just wait for opportunity to do right. They look for it, and they do it. Anybody that's passive could be um, uh, considered a good person because they don't do anything bad. But in the scriptures, passivity is really not always a virtue. Amen? In certain circumstances, it could be, but it's not always. This isn't the person who just agrees with something that's good. They're the ones that promote it, they underwrite it, they do it, as the verbs indicate. They walk the walk, they talk the talk. James also says this to Jewish believers. He says, and you guys are familiar with this, but he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. How many people do you think are deceived? because they are passive. He goes on, he says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, now I know that in Christianity today, we, we, say, we say, well, we're not religious. We're in a relationship. There's another slogan for you. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, let's insert the word spiritual, right? And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This one's religion or spirituality is useless. Pure and undefiled spirituality before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You see, there's both passive, to be unspotted, and there's active. Now, to visit orphans and widows does not mean to you know, go down to the orphanage and sit with them and say hi. The idea of visiting in the scriptures means to provide. God visits us in some form of provision, whether it be for the atonement of our sins, to the, the provision of our physical needs. It always has something to do with provision. We don't just come and say hi and uh, sorry you have no food, but all I'm told to do is visit you. Amen? He who sees his brother destitute of needs has no clothing, food, and you do nothing. He's, the love of God is not in you. So yeah, don't, don't go there with that. Okay. So James, I think of all people, he would, he would say don't be fooled. 
God's people, they're not pew warmers. They're not sideliners. They're the ones involved. Yeah. And David says these are the ones that are qualified to be in fellowship with God. But there's also things that they don't do. It's he who does not backbite with his tongue. Do we use backbiting much anymore in our vocabulary? Backbiting. Nor does evil to his neighbor, uh, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Uh, notice how generic does not do evil to his neighbor is. That's a huge, broad kind of term, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the people qualified to be in fellowship with the Lord, the first one there, he does not backbite. The idea is that he doesn't slander people. Any slander going on? How about politically? <laughs> does not slander others evil to his neighbor. Reproach, uh, it's the idea of taunting or provoking. Taunting or provoking. He does not provoke others. Now, I, I get the sense in this passage that this is a, a peaceful person. Does the, does the New Testament uh, encourage us to be peaceful people? Live at peace with all men? Okay, live a quiet, peaceable life? Don't meddle in other people's affairs? Yeah. This, is, I think, is a person who does what they can to live that quiet life in harmony with others um, by not commenting on Facebook. Some of you are like, I don't even get on Facebook. Good for you. I don't get on Facebook anymore either. Unless I'm trying to figure out if there's a creepy person in the church. Okay, because, I mean, it's amazing how foolish people can be when they're on social media. And, uh, yeah, in fact, I, I like sometimes to read theological things um, on the Internet and then I, I know I shouldn't read the comments because I know that it's not really going to be about exegeting the text that they talked about. It's going to be addressing people's character. So it begins by addressing the author's character and then somebody goes to the defense of the author and then the rest of the comments for the next, you know, you scroll for hours and it's them attacking one another. And it's very Christian. It's just so beautiful the witness that is, yeah. But this person, they seem to have no quarrel. They have no quarrel. And they, have no, they, they give no reason for others to quarrel with them. He doesn't start it. He doesn't entertain it. That's the person that stays off Facebook. Um, good citizen, good neighbor, a good friend. Also, this person, it says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So stating things positively again. Now the NIV places the words of the first line in a different order for clarity, saying that the person qualified to abide in God's presence despises a vile person. That is, he cannot bear, he cannot tolerate the loathsome reprobate those who are utterly contemptible because of their moral depravity and behavior. How many guys feel comfortable with despising a vile person? I said I'd address a controversial issue. Now, I think that I know that when I read that, because of my, some of my upbringing, uh, I've been trained to love the sinner and hate the sin. How many guys have heard that? How many guys have struggled with it? Be honest. I'll look at your Facebook page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, doesn't the text seem to challenge the slogan? I think it does. And I believe for good reason. You know, we, we all find it difficult 
to hate the sin and love the sinner because the two cannot really be separated, even though we tell ourselves that they can. Okay. Uh, real quick, you know, when we say things like that, we always say it with somebody in the world in mind, right? And then they catch wind of this, and what do they actually hear? False piety, that's what they hear. Because they get the sense that, no, they really do hate me, or they really do despise me, because what I'm doing is a part of me. It comes from me. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so I don't think the world is fooled by what we tell ourselves. You think that's true? I think it's true. I've never had some in the world go, oh, thank you for hating my sin, but just loving me. Because they don't get that sense when we talk about their sin, when we talk about their behavior, because behavior is always connected to their behavior, right? So they just hear false piety. And I think the slogan should be dropped. Uh, and if it's used, it should be biblically qualified. You get it? Biblically qualified. The sinner is the one who commits sin. The sinner is the sinner. He's wicked and he does wickedness. There's just no way to separate the two, okay? If there was no evil persons, would there be evil works? No, no, no. Yeah. In Daniel eleven twenty one, God refers to Antiochus Epiphanes as a vile person, and he was rightly despised by the Jewish people. They even came up with alternative names for him. So he wanted to be Epiphanes, the manifestation of God, and they called him Epimanes, the crazy one. Okay? Uh, they despised him. Uh, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, despised Haman, the Agagite, and would not pay him any respect at the gate of the citadel, and for good reason. He was a despicable person. Agag was vile, Esther uh, chapter 3, verse 2. So you have cases of the righteous loathing the wicked persons, not simply the conduct of the persons. Now, at what point someone transitions you know, from your run-of-the-mill sinner uh, to that of a vile person who is worthy of our loathing, I don't know for certain. You understand? I don't know where that line is where they go from you know, just a depraved sinner to the vile, something seriously wrong with them. I, I don't know where that line is, but I'm pretty sure that I can point out a few vile persons who have definitely crossed that line and are worthy of um, being loathed. I, I think of pedophiles. I think of human traffickers, serial killers, rapists, those who hate God with all of their might. Christopher Hitchens comes to mind. Um, he's a, he was, rather, a, um, a, just a hateful, venom-filled atheist. He was an atheist, by the way. Uh, he has died, and um, just a, he's no longer an atheist. That's right. But I must say that even though I despise these people, it would never stop me from sharing the gospel and preaching repentance to them. It wouldn't. I think it might even motivate my preaching, uh, not for their sake alone, but for the sake of society. I mean, they're a danger to everyone. You know, if that becomes contagious, uh, that's what, you know, you get that into a society and the whole society becomes completely debauched, you know. Uh, I would certainly go to their aid if they were in danger or if they were in need, just like Romans chapter 12 says that, you know, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. If he is hungry, give him something to eat. 
for by doing so you'll heap burning coals on his head. We don't know where the, the saying came from, but we have the idea there is that we would win them through kindness, through benevolence. Yeah. I told my ETS group that if an abortion doctor was trapped in a burning building, I would put myself in danger to rescue them. I, I, I really would, even though I despise him or her for what they do. You get it? Yeah. Can such people be saved? Absolutely. Should they be despised? Absolutely. They should. They are despicable. Yeah. But I think the danger in this is that we have to be careful not to demonize people because we just don't like them. Because we can do that. And I don't think that's spiritual. I don't think it's, it's healthy. Yeah. But I do believe the Holy Spirit has given, the, given us the ability to recognize not just the average sinner, but someone who is absolutely morally deranged. Morally deranged. Uh, it's interesting reading uh, commentators on this particular verse. Uh, and I was looking up guys that wrote in the second century AD and guys that are writing uh, more recently. Not many people talk about it. <laughs> but I did find one Hebrew scholar, uh, Willem van Gerriman. This is all he says. The godly are not free to despise any sinner, only those who are hardened in their perversities. Now, I'm not sure if he's using brevity to keep himself out of trouble, uh, or if, I don't know, I don't know, but he is saying that, uh, he's trying to give a word of, of caution. But the point that I'm trying to talk about here as well is, a vile person cannot be separated from their deeds, can they? They can't, in spite of the slogan. I think it's something that's easily said, uh, but I don't even think that we're actually capable of, of doing it. We'll say, love the sinner, hate the sin, but as soon as evil touches you or a loved one, I think something of God in you comes out. And that is a holy kind of hatred for evil and evil things. Yeah. I would say that if we do not despise a vile person as God does, there may be something then wrong with us. And we're supposed to be becoming like God, right? Yeah. From the scriptures, there's every indication that God hates the wicked until they repent. Psalm uh, five five says that God hates all the workers of iniquity. John tells us this. He says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What is the wrath of God? It's righteous indignation. That's what that is. And he says it remains. It's currently on the unrepentant, the unbeliever. Uh, Jesus said in, in, in John 3.17 that um, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He says the world is already condemned. The wrath of God currently abides on them. His righteous indignation is upon them. And so in light of this, on the day of judgment, God is not going to make a distinction between the person and their deeds. He's going to judge the person because of their deeds. He cannot separate the two. So Psalm 15 doesn't say that we should love the vile person and then despise their vileness. It's, that's not what the text says, not at all. It's saying we despise both that kind of person and their deeds. So Romans 12.29 says that we should hate what is evil. And Psalm 97.10 says, you who love God should hate evil. But then Psalm 139 verses 21 through 22 says, do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? 
I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. How, how could he not? They hated the God that he loves. Now, just a couple more thoughts here. If we separate the person from their conduct, we cannot justify the punishment of the wicked for their wicked deeds. The other way is true as well. We couldn't justly reward the righteous for their righteous deeds if, in fact, persons are to be separated from their deeds. You just can't. Even in the gospel, a substitute is a person, and they are punished for the crimes of others. So in, 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 the, in the gospel of Christ, guilt is transferred from the wicked, that's us, to the righteous. But it's still a person that is punished for evil, because only persons can perform evil. Evil is never punished as a separate entity because evil is not a thing in itself. You get it? Yeah. So here's another challenge in all this. Scripture says we're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves and to despise a vile person. Don't you love that? Yeah. So a question that I have is, can we love and despise the same person at the same time? I think you can. I think you can. Uh, Perhaps the way to solve this is that it's the image of God in a person that we love but the person who is vile, we loathe. It's the only way that I can solve that problem at this point. If you got solutions to that, I'd love to hear from you after service. Okay, I'm sure Jamie has a comment. All right, uh, and I think it fits with the, you know, my illustration about an abortion doctor trapped in a burning building. My sacrifice would demonstrate an act of love, but it doesn't change the fact that I despise them as a person. Yeah. So I might have created more questions than I've answered, but... Uh, I don't think we can ignore the text um, and the many others on it. Let's move on. David continues. He says, The person who is qualified to abide in God's presence honors those who fear the Lord. So the person who fears the Lord is the person who is right with the Lord, I believe, in every way. Okay. I would also argue that everything else in their life, at least on their their part, is right as well. When When we look in the Psalms, we look at the Proverbs, and the things that, that flow out of the fear of the Lord, it, it, it seems like it's everything. You know, how can a young man uh, depart from evil to, to fear the Lord? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is, is the, the way that ungod, or not ungodliness, but godliness comes about because the fear of the Lord gives you right perspective. It helps you think of God in the right way. They're, they're right. So he says we should honor those who fear the Lord, those who are right with the Lord. The word for honor is the same word that's used in the Ten Commandments regarding the honoring of a father and mother. Same exact Hebrew word, um, which means to hold them in high regard, to respect them. So you see the contrast here in the text. He says the vile should be lowly esteemed, but those who fear the Lord should be highly esteemed. You think we have some of that backwards in our culture? I think mostly uh, among our young people, especially, whose heroes are rarely people of virtue, people of virtue. We have athletes uh, known for their virtues, uh, musicians, actors, actresses. That is not the stuff that heroes are made of, right? It's not it. When I think of of true biblical heroes, I think of house moms, to be honest. Uh, Those moms that are raising the next generation, I, I just, the moms... Faithful fathers, missionaries, the heroes of the faith, people of sacrifice. That's, that's what heroes are made of. And uh, they should be honored among us. And finally, uh, the last line of verse 4 is, 
He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, or does not change his mind. So this is the person who stands by the truth even when the truth hurts them, hurts them. The person who will testify in court to the truth knowing that the truth is going to bring them pain. I'm going to tell the truth in spite of what happens to me. Uh, I'm going to say what's right uh, no matter the consequences. Those are, those are heroes right there. He says, he who does not put out his money at usury, that's an interesting one, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, and he who does these things shall never be moved. Now that's the last statement stated in the negative, but it it's doesn't fit in with the other ones exactly. But I, I know that when it was sung in Hebrew, it, it was all, and I don't know musical terms, would it be harmony, Roger, Tucker? It would fit in the poem. Not in rhymes, the, the Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, okay? Uh, but I don't know how it goes. I don't know the words for it. But it all sounds right. How's that? It all comes together. Yeah, so the last one stating the negative, he says money for usury. That is someone that they don't charge interest uh, when they loan their goods. Now that particular virtue is stated uh, here because of what's said in the law of Moses. The Jews, and this is interesting, a Jew could loan his, mother, his, loan his money, not his mother, uh, to another Jew, but he couldn't charge a Jew interest, okay? Deuteronomy 23, 19. But if he loaned his money to a foreigner, he could charge interest. Now, he had to be fair. He had to be equitable. He couldn't take advantage of them because that's condemned in the law. But for his, his, his flesh and blood, he could not do that. Now, in the New Covenant, we're not under the law of Moses, so this same thing doesn't exactly uh, apply to us. But in the same way that the Jews would loan to a foreigner, we have to abide by that if we're going to charge interest. We can't take advantage of people. We have to be equitable. Uh, I would say even we, we should be even more gracious or merciful in our lending with interest than the world does uh, as a testimony to people. Now, uh, I don't, and, I, and I, I've heard people say, well, if you're going to loan to another believer, you should never charge interest. That is a Jewish national thing. Uh, it's not in the new covenant, uh, but if you wanted to loan money to a believer and not charge interest, good for you. Uh, if you did charge interest, just make sure that it's, you're being nice, okay? Be nice. Don't take advantage of people. Also, the qualified person does not take a bribe against the innocent, I hope that one's obvious to you guys. Uh, so I didn't actually experience bribery until I went to Africa, and we got it a lot. So I was there with Aaron. We were pulled over three different times, and all three times uh, we were asked for a bribe so that they could look the, over, the other way from a crime we didn't commit. It was crazy. Uh, so these police officers wanted a bribe from the innocent to let the innocent go. The, the money was to remind them of what never happened. It, it was just so crazy. So bribes, of course, come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, a bribe will be offered to get the authorities to look the other way before uh, or after a crime is committed. Um, bribes are given to accuse the innocent of wrong. Of course, the most famous story in the Bible of bribery is, is what? Judas. That's right. Uh, but his is a little interesting. He, he went to the, the chief priest and says, how are you willing to bribe me? He says, what are you willing to give me that I would turn him over to you? 
And so they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Um, So they didn't offer him a bribe. He asked for one. Bribes are for political favors. Deuteronomy 16, 19 says, A bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Now, I I have to share this with you because I ran across it reading a a blog, a a theologian. Now, this is what he says, and I, I wanted to pitch this to you to see what you guys thought. I have my thoughts, as you know. Of course, he teaches that to receive a bribe is immoral, but it's not immoral to give a bribe under certain circumstances. And the example he gives is like paying someone to forge a vaccine passport for you. His justification comes out of Proverbs 21:14, which says, a gift in secret pacifies anger and a bribe behind the back strong wrath. The the NIV says, a gift given in secret soothes anger, and a bribe concealed in the cloak pacifies great wrath. I would like to know what he's going to do when the mark of the beast is mandated. You going to do a, you going to bribe Antichrist or somebody else to try to mimic that? What do you guys think about that? I'm curious. What's your, what's your gut reaction to that? Huh? That verse? It's, um, that's Proverbs 21:14. What do you think of his application? Yeah. What's that? Oh, it's definitely not being truthful. It's very interesting. To, to utilize the Proverbs for moral justification is a very, very slippery place to go. Because the Proverbs oftentimes are just statements of fact or they're generalizations about reality. Now, is it true that I could pacify wrath with a bribe? It's it's, it's possible. Uh, is the text telling me to do that? It isn't telling me to do that. It's just telling it, it, what is generally true. This could be true. This could happen. And uh, if I played this game with all of the Proverbs, things would get crazy. We would have no boundaries at all. In fact, the Proverbs say, rebuke a fool in his folly. And the very next verse says, don't do it. I mean, they literally contradict one another. Of course, they're, they're supposed to be applied in different circumstances, but there are some where if you, if, if you tried to find a circumstance where to do or not to do what the proverb says, you're going to be in big trouble. And so I think this particular theologian is bonkers. I think he's nuts, and uh, I think people should stay away from him. But um, let's wrap it up. He says, whoever does these things will not be shaken, uh, the, or shaken or moved, of course, in the context, it's the one who does what is right and who abstains from what is wrong. He says they'll never be shaken or moved, of course, in a figurative sense. I would add that because this is the person who abides in the Lord's presence, his fellowship with the Lord would go unbroken if he continues in godliness. Now, how many of you guys think that you can accomplish that? Now, I hope that as Christians, that is your goal and by the grace of God, you will have plenty of sweetness of fellowship with the Lord. But how many of you do not falter? Yeah, we falter. Yeah. And that's why um, the Christian lifestyle really has to be a lifestyle of repentance. Because we do falter so much in word and thought and deed that we, we have to constantly come back to the Lord, repent, confess our sins, be reconciled so that we can maintain that fellowship. And if, if repentance is your lifestyle, if that's what you're in the habit of doing when you slip, when you falter, 
then you will have that steady fellowship with the Lord. But if you're the person that just pushes things aside, uh, you are the one that is, you're hurting yourself because you are being pushed further and further away. Um, yeah. Now, as we began, I said, you know, we're not talking about people and how they can get saved or how they can work their way into God's presence. We're talking about people who are saved and how they can maintain fellowship with God. Uh, the, the beauty about all of this is, first of all, the reason that we can exercise a life of repentance is because Christ, who is the perfect man, who is in constant fellowship with God, he paid for our sins, and he ever lives to what? To intercede for the saint. He's constantly there as our advocate before the Father uh, so that we can have access, so that we actually can repent. Without his atoning work, that wouldn't even be available to us. We would be completely outside. And so fellowship, well, sorry, salvation, fellowship with God is completely contingent upon the work of Christ. It's because of him that we can repent. It's because of him that we can go to the, the throne of grace in time of need. Amen. So, you know, when I read, I, I feel like Psalms like this, the book of James also, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, they're all very intimidating. And, uh, but it's because we, we, God has granted repentance to us that we can strive for these, that we can still falter and then get up and strive more and be reconciled and enjoy fellowship. And so don't be intimidated like this to where it pushes you away. Understand this is what God wants us to strive for by his grace, by his spirit. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. If you have comments about... Um, you know, vaccine passports and uh, despising vile people could be a fun conversation. Yeah. yeah. Father, we love you. And Lord, I, I'm so thankful that, as David says, that we are but dust. But you love us. And you desire that we be close to you, that we have fellowship with you. You always call us to repentance because you want your kids to be with you. So I pray, Lord, that as we strive to be those that are qualified to dwell in your, your presence, that we would be quick to repent. As another slogan goes, if you fall, fall face forward. <laughs> Help us to look to you, Lord, when we falter. But Lord, by your spirit, help us as individuals, as a church, to grow that we might be one of those, that we might be a church of those who dwell and enjoy that sweet fellowship with you. And Lord, when we encounter difficult things like despising vile people, um, Lord, grant us wisdom. And, um, and at the end of the day, Lord, just help us to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Lord bless you guys.